And I loved your science experiment thing, like date like a scientist. Yeah. Because I think a lot of times people are afraid to have conversations because they don't want a certain outcome. Whereas a scientist is like, we're going to do this experiment. This is what I hope the outcome is. Yeah. But that's why we're doing the experiment. I'm going to see what it is. And I feel like that's that's those hard conversations, like to find the relationship. Mm -hmm. Everybody holds off because it's like in your gut, you're being like, I feel like I'm not going to get the answer I want. What real science should be is the scientific method where you have a hypothesis and you test it and either either um, you have the finding and sometimes you have a different finding, but both findings are valuable. And so I really love what you're saying because it's in dating, if you wanted to find the relationship, but you don't because you're like, what if they say they're not ready? Or what if you say, what if they say they're not interested? That's bad. What if you reframe that to say, if they tell me that they're not interested or that they just got out of a long relationship and they won't be ready for a while? Well, at least now I know that. I think for anyone listening, it's what is the conversation that you really need to be having that you're avoiding? Mm-hmm. What is the risk of having the conversation? And is isn't not having that conversation a bigger risk than having it. And so just Mm. go have that conversation. Yeah. And I'd say like manipulating the experiment is the same as like giving ultimatums or lying (laughs) yourself. Like, you know, like you're like putting people in positions that you're like, well, I'm getting the result I want. Like now they're coming with me to my cousin's wedding. And it's like, you manipulated the experiment just because all you were worried about was the outcome. And it's like, it's not accurate though. Mm-hmm. It's like that. like withholding sex yeah. until they do something. Yes, like, that's another one. I've done that. Oh, yeah. Doesn't work out. <laughs> I think. Hey everybody, welcome back to Shooters Gotta Shoot. I am your co-host Erica Spera. And I'm Molly Demilier. And we have such an awesome episode Mm -hmm. for you this week. Yeah, we do. We got to talk with Logan Urie, the author of the new book, How Not to Die Alone. And I feel like I say this every week now, but like this was one of my favorite interviews. The book itself was a combo of so many other books that we've read mm-hmm. of the good parts yes really. it's it's a really it's like an all-star highlight this is really where we should have started and we wouldn't have had <laughs> a podcast for a year and a half <laughs> if we just hit the highlights with logan's book yeah i mean we didn't even dive into every aspect that i won't be surprised mm-hmm. if we go back to this book mm-hmm. for another episode absolutely but it was so great to get her on to talk all her theories she's so smart she is she knows her shit (laughs) and like you will want her to like be your personal dating coach yeah like i want to text her yeah like i thought i was a logical brain and then we (laughs) talked to logan and i was like nah girl you got it (laughs) (laughs) we were actually talking like a week after we recorded with her and you texted me and you were like i have a question what do you think logan would do i was like slide it in her dms man (laughs) we should just ask her yeah right makes me want to ask her but um i don't want to waste too much time on this intro because we talked to her for a while but Mm -hmm. uh yeah if you guys want to win her book we have a copy of it to give away uh share this episode tag logan at logan ury that's logan ury and logan is l-o-g-a-n tag her tag us at shooters gotta shoot pod share the episode to your story and you will submit for a chance to win yeah and super exciting um we've partnered with wow tech group for a giveaway of the womanizer vibrator which we're going to be doing over on the patreon so we will pull that um may 1st so sign up for the patreon for your chance to win a womanizer vibrator yeah sign up by the end of april for Mm -hmm. a chance to win yeah baby we are we're just giving everything away 
I know, I'm very yeah. excited. I'm, I'm very pumped. excited the pod has hit the point, and it's because of the listeners, mm-hmm. that we are now getting stuff to give away to the fans. Yes. So, very, A lot very of excited. cool stuff that's still coming up, too. So, yeah. uh, buckle up, and uh, let's get to Logan. Yeah, be on the lookout, and enjoy. Let's do it. She is the director of relationship science at Hinge. And the author of How to Not Die Alone. It's Logan Yuri. Woo, 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 woo. Welcome to the Yay. show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Ooh, I do feel really hyped up now. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. We both just read your book and absolutely loved it. It was so good. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit kind of about your background and about your book and just kind of a brief synopsis? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've always had these two interests, psychology, the science of decision-making, sort of the academic realm, and then dating and relationships. And so it feels like for a long time, I've just been trying to figure out how to marry the two. And so in the earlier part of my career, I was more in the psychology realm. I was working at Google, running this team called the Irrational Lab. And basically our job there was, how do we take what we know from academia about how people make decisions and how do we apply it to Google marketing, Google products? But At the same time I was running that team, I was single, I was swiping, I was on Tinder, I was struggling, and I looked all around me and all these Google wizards, these people that had basically invented the internet were also struggling. And I was like, what can I do? And so I started this series at Google where I would bring in experts to talk about dating and relationships. And so ever since then, I've been on this quest to combine decision-making with dating and relationships. And now... I have the opportunity to do that in a big way. So in my role at Hinge, I help lead a research team. We ask the big questions, you know, what's holding people back in dating? If everyone in dating did this one thing, like how could the whole ecosystem of Hinge be better? And then of course my book, which what makes my book different from a book from another love guru is that it's all about decision-making. And so the premise of the book is, If you make good decisions along the way, you'll propel yourself into a great relationship. If you make bad decisions, you're going to repeat your bad patterns and you're going to wind up in no relationship or a bad relationship. And so the book is all about taking the best of what we know about love, this field called relationship science, and what we know about decision-making, this field called behavioral science. And the idea is that if you read it and you're single, hopefully by the end of the book, you'll be able to start overcoming your bad habits, make better decisions, and actually get into that relationship if you want. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was what I love so much about your book is Thank that you. it was so much about the human behavior side and the elements of decision making. And I think what happens, especially for a lot of women, when they read relationship books, it's like, do this, don't do that. Someone will fall in love with you. And you kind of feel like you have to be this whole other person. Um, but your book is obviously about just understanding your own habits. I really love that. And to be honest, you know, I've read a lot of the scientific papers. I've read a lot of the books on decision making, but I haven't read that many dating books. I mean, I've obviously been exposed to it in culture and team rom-coms, but like, I bet you've read a lot more dating books than me. And Mm -hmm. so I really take that as a powerful compliment because what I hear you saying is like, with my book, it's like, you are who you are, figure out your stuff. It's going to empower you, go find love. And it sounds like what you're saying, other pieces of advice tell you is 
the way you're acting won't work. You have to change yourself. You have mm-hmm. to wear a mask. That's how you're going to get someone to love you. Like, don't be yourself. Guys don't like funny women. Guys don't <laughs> like when you make the first move. Like, don't have sex too early. And then you're always like, wait, am I playing the role of cool girl? And yes. that's really exhausting. Absolutely. And then you kind of get to a point where the real you eventually comes out and there's this fear that this person won't like you for who you are because they actually don't know that person. Oh yeah. I totally feel that way, especially about my husband. I'm like, just the way I act around him is sometimes <laughs> like so crazy that I'm like, I just feel like he like knows every weird thing that I do and he just <laughs> accepts me. And like, he just sees them as like these adorable quirks that other people would find like very gross or weird. And it's like, <laughs> oh, like I just, of course was going to wind up with someone that would find this stuff charming because if not, Like it wouldn't have worked out. Like I needed somebody who would be like, oh, it's so cute that you haven't shaved under your arm in three weeks. Like, ha ha ha, right? Versus somebody who would be like, here's a razor. Like I just think, do you know what I mean? And like, Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about it the other day when we were going for a bike ride and I was wearing a tank top and I was like, yeah, like I just needed to be my gross self and have somebody accept it versus pretending to be this other person. And then one day they're like, who did I wind up with? Exactly. And I love the decision part of your book because yeah. a lot of the books we read that are relationships in general are very much to women, straight women, uh, like get chosen. Yes. And there's nothing telling them to choose. Mm-hmm. It's like you have to get someone to choose you. But no point in the book where like, yeah, also, but does she like this guy? Like, yeah. is he meeting her needs? And it's just like very like meet their needs. Be, you know, this wow. 10 yeah. out of 10 and on all levels. And it's like, don't worry about what you need. Like, get the ring, you know? Yeah. I told, I mean, that totally resonates with me. And yeah, another part of my book that I've been getting feedback on is that it's not very gendered. It's not like women Mm -hmm. do this, men do this. There are a couple of parts where I'm like, hello, like fertility is real. And like, (laughs) if you're this age and you want to, you know, give birth to your children, like this is how fertility works. And this is why I froze my eggs, blah, blah, blah. But like, I don't actually think that these things are super gendered. It's like have integrity, respect yourself, respect other people, be the kind of person who somebody wants to choose and choose a good person. Like Mm -hmm. it's not about men are the pursuers and women, you know, stand this way so that you'll be chosen. Like even just hearing you say that, I'm like, that is so far from my framework (laughs) and also so far from like, I guess the behavior that I respect, like the people that I work with in a coaching capacity, I feel like if they came to me and were like, you know, what color or men's eyes most attracted to like or just I don't know just something like that I'd be like that's not really like how I approach it like not that that stuff like is or isn't real but I feel like I just have a totally different frame on like Mm -hmm. this partner selection thing right and I'm sure you've seen in your clients the same mistakes and the same patterns regardless of gender and sexuality yeah and that yeah that's like I uh, the intro to the book the author's note says the bad news is that unfortunately not that much research has been done on LGBTQ couples Mm mm-hmm and that's because most research happens in these like uh, environments that are just whatever the academics have access to. But the good news is that when that research has been done, a lot of this stuff is just universal. And therefore, we can expect that sort of the heterosexual research can apply in a way that makes people feel like um, the advice in the book or the advice elsewhere is relevant to them, too, even if they are not the same as the people who were studied in the in the academic experiment. 
we were just actually talking about that, Eric and I, and how that was something we really loved about your book too, and that set it apart. And I think even just um, the characters and uh, scenarios that you had in there, they were a mix of straight and gay relationships. And so I really just think any person can pick up this book and learn to do something different in the way that they approach relationships. And that's so unique. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was going to say there also was a shout out to people that are not non-monogamous, not mm-hmm. traditional monogamy, yeah. which kind of also was a new wave of people being public about being poly, being, you know, whatever mm-hmm. you're, you know, ethically non-monogamous. I know someone. So I, even that part really sparked my brain. I oh, was just like, oh, I'm wow. So glad. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah. I mean, so I had this one experiment experience where basically I'm super extroverted person and I'd always wanted to write a book, but like sitting alone at a laptop in a WeWork, like that's just not really my personality. And so I was like, how can I like set up a system so that I can write this book and make it more of a public thing. And so I I created these accountability dinners where I would ask different friends, every three weeks, can you throw me a dinner? Like, you know, I would pay for the dinner, but invite 10 people I don't know. I'm going to send you two chapters in advance and the 10 of us will get together around a table and talk about the chapters. And so it's really social. I got feedback and it was like accountability because it wasn't like the month before the book was due, I hadn't written anything. And so at one of the these dinners, we were talking about the paradox of choice. And I was saying, oh, I have all these clients and they don't know how to choose and blah, blah, blah. And this guy was there and he's like, I'm a 44 year old Indian man. This is not my problem. I wish I had the problem of too many people to choose. That's not what's going on for me. My problem is I can't get matches. People don't want to go out with me. And he was just so bold about it that I was like, wow, I'm just really not representing all the experiences. And so I was like, will you be my DEI consultant? Will you read the book and give me feedback on it? And he Mm. was like, yeah, absolutely. And so anyway, I actually had different people that were reading the book for different things. So he was looking at it from more of a race angle and inclusivity. And, you know, were there things I said where he's like, that just doesn't, that's not my problem. And then I also had a friend who's a lesbian who read it with the angle of, you know, am I being too cis normative to heteronormative and all of that. And there weren't that many changes that they made, but I think just that moment at that dinner where I was like, oh, if I just represent my experiences and my clients' experiences, there's still things I'm missing out on. And so thank you for the compliment because I did take it really seriously. Well, it, it, it definitely shows. shows. Yeah. <laughs> it shows, baby. Yeah. Trust me. Don't, you can skip a lot of other dating books. Okay. Yeah, really nice. Thank you. Um, so one thing when you mentioned uh, when you talked about your book about kind of the patterns and mm-hmm. a little bit of like the mistakes that people tend to repeat. So when you were single, were there any mm-hmm. dating patterns that you found yourself repeating? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, one thing that sometimes people say more before I wrote the book than now, but, you know, you're at the time like you're not even married or you're young. Like, how are you going to write this book? And I was like, well, what I am lacking in years of being married. I have in years of swiping and making bad dating mistakes in an online dating world. And so I think that that is sort of what sets me apart is like, I've ghosted, I've been ghosted, like I've made all these mistakes. And I think one of the biggest mistakes I made was I really suffered from this anxious, anxious attachment style. And like looking back on those memories, it's really painful just to be like, oh, I was really hurting myself. Like I was doing these things that felt really bad. And so for people listening who don't know about this, basically there's this thing called attachment theory. It's one of the best research elements of relationship science. And the idea is that It's somewhat biological. It's somewhat based on who was your caregiver when you were a kid, but some people are anxiously attached. They always feel like somebody is going to abandon them and they always are reaching out. That's the person who's like, call me when you land, call me when you get to the concert, right? They always want to be in touch and they can get into this red zone where they freak out and text you 10 times. 
Then there's people who are avoidant attached. And those are the people who say, I feel like you're smothering me. You're just, you know, you're all over me and I I need my independence. And those people are always worried that someone's going to take up their space. And so they push back. And then the third is securely attached people. And they are sort of the relationship heroes. They have that good (laughs) balance between wanting to connect and also wanting um, their independence. And so even though around 50% of people are securely attached, they get into relationships. And so in the relationship realm, you have the anxious people dating the avoidant people, reinforcing this loop, this anxious avoidant loop. Mm. And I was totally in that loop. I was the anxiously attached person being like, where are you going? Where are you? Why? Come back. And then they were like, why are you smothering me? And then I'd be like, oh, this, the chase, that's the love part. Like the chase is like convincing them of your worth. The chase is like scheduling a dinner with them so that they'll be like, oh, I remember how great she is. And like, just having like a really messed up view of what it looked like. And so I would get into these anxious avoidant loops and it's not always so clear. It's not like you wake up and you're like, he's clearly not interested in me. You sometimes think he is and sometimes think he isn't. You get really attached to that anxiety, which you think is chemistry. And so I actually went to a dating coach myself and we did a bunch of exercises, but the most helpful one was thinking about how you want this person to make you feel. And so it was easy for me to write down, I want to feel secure. I want to feel appreciated. I want to feel smart. I want to feel desired. You know, things that I felt around my favorite people in my life. And then how did the guy I was chasing at the time make me feel, you know, anxious, insecure, just all of these negative emotions. And so then I realized, oh, well, there is someone in my life who makes me feel the way I want to feel. And it's this guy at work. And sort of through that experience, I was able to um, shoot my shot. (laughs) Yeah. And now we're married. So that was really great. Uh, I really did that so hard of like putting yourself in scenarios and being like, if I look really hot, if I'm just super charismatic, I'll just keep showing up to where I know they're going to be. Like Mm -hmm. it's going to happen. And it's exhausting. First of all. (laughs) And it's also just like, at what point do you stop? Like we've all done that. We were like, I'll just keep doing it. I'll do it another time. I'll do it another time. And then you know, yeah. What makes that switch flip? Right. And it's exactly what you said. It's like, if, if I do this, then I will convince them to fall in love with me. And I just think that that's like the wrong frame in general. It's Mm -hmm. like when I am myself, the right person will fall in love with me for who I am. I don't have to change and I don't have to like be this other person. There's, I feel like in a great connection, there is no convincing. Like Mm -hmm. both people like walk towards each other as opposed to like what you and I are describing. It's like, if only with the right lighting and the right <laughs> mascara, like yeah. then he will know. It's like, no, that's not really how it works. And that doesn't really last. Mm-hmm. Well, that also kind of plays into the spark or the idea of the spark. And I know in your book, you have the chapter, it's called like, fuck the spark. And we totally agree with that. And I just, can you give us some of your thoughts on why you think so many people are just so addicted to trying to find a spark with someone? You know, it's interesting, like when you write a book, you're mostly by yourself and then it comes out, you don't necessarily know like which chapters are going to take off. And maybe it's just because it has the word fuck in it, but fuck the spark really seems to have taken on on its life, a life of its own. And I'm really happy about that. I think it's because it's counterintuitive and provocative and people are like, wait, so you don't think the spark is real? And it's like, no, the spark is real. Like certainly I've had experiences I can think of in my mind where you meet someone and you're like, I feel like I've known you my entire life. Like, I just want to stare at your face forever. Like there (laughs) is that feeling of immediate chemistry. Like absolutely the spark is real. What the chapter fuck the spark is about is don't be led astray by the spark. The reason why I've gotten so into this idea of fuck the spark is that in my work as a dating coach, I hear 
about so many stories of after people's dates, right? So they'll say, uh, I met up with this girl. She was great. It was a really good date. We had really good conversation. It was a fun night. She put a lot of effort into it. I'm not going to see her again. I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. Why? (laughs) And then the woman will be like, well, I just didn't feel the spark. And so it's become this catch-all phrase that means, you know, I didn't feel this pang of instant chemistry. And so what the three myths of the spark are is one, that the spark can't grow. And we just know that that's not true. Lots of people end up dating or marrying someone who they've known for years, who grows on them over time. So for example, I think I knew my husband for eight years before we even started dating. Wow. And then- The next myth is that if you feel the spark, it's a good thing. And that's absolutely not true. Some people are just really sparky. They make Mm -hmm. you feel that chemistry. They make you feel so attracted to them. And you think that it's something between the two of you, but it's actually something that they have that they give many people. And so you... You think, oh, um, we have something going on, but it's actually, they're really hot. They're really charismatic. They're really narcissistic and they make people feel a certain way. So I think people get very confused and they think, I feel this chemistry. And so not only it might it just be who they are, but it also could be, they make you feel unclear about what's going on. And in that sense where you have a lack of clarity, you confuse that anxiety for chemistry. And so that's also something to avoid. And then the last one is, if you have the spark, then the relationship must be viable. That's also not true, right? A lot of divorced couples once felt the spark. And just because you feel it and it feels really good, it doesn't mean that that's the relationship for you. And people listening, they might think, oh, that's obvious. I wouldn't marry someone for the spark, but you'd be confused. People, you'd you'd be surprised. People get very caught up in their how we met story. Mm -hmm. And they say to themselves, but I was on the airplane and I switched my seat and he had the seat that I was switched into. And then we met and we were meant to be like, why would this have happened if we're not meant to be? And it's like, maybe you were meant to have a great love story. It doesn't mean that you were meant to have a great life story. Mm. And don't get into the wrong relationship because you met the quote unquote right way. And people just get so confused by this. And so my antidote to the spark is to go after the slow burn. And in doing all these interviews, I'm kind of like, wait, this is actually such a main theme of my book. Sometimes I call it the slow burn. Sometimes (laughs) I call it the life partner. Sometimes I say go on the second date, but it's all the same message. It's the best people out there. Many of them are not initially charismatic on the first date. And maybe even your parents said this to you. I don't know. It might be like a Jewish parent thing, but it's like marry the nerd. Like I agree, like be the nerd, marry the nerd, like be that person that will be there for you for the long run. Because in the end, like what you want by your side is the slow burn because the spark is going to fade. Very true. I mean, I love this chapter so much and it really resonated actually with something that our good friend uh, Carrie said after I had a relationship end a few weeks ago. It was definitely a slow burn relationship. Just it, there wasn't, you know, that spark in the beginning, but it was, you know, we just got along really well and everything was very stable and out of nowhere he kind of pulled the plug. And what my friend w- said was he's not seeing that love is a decision. You know, Mm. he's not he just thinks that this should just constantly be fireworks. And, you know, you're so many months in and you're you should be building something. He should decide to show up for you. And he's not he's not emotionally mature enough to understand that that's what this is or what it should so, be. Sounds like a really good friend. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, totally she's the best. <laughs> and like sometimes sometimes people come to me for dating coaching advice. Like this woman was like, "Well, I went on a date with this guy and I really liked him, but 
we split the check and my friends were like, no, not boyfriend material. If he (laughs) wanted to be with you, he'd pay. That's what happens on the first date. And I was like, you make good money. Like who cares? That's a dumb rule. Like just ignore that. Everything else was great. And now flash forward two or three years, like they live together. I think they're going to get married. And the splitting the check thing was like, he is actually just a very frugal person that supports his whole family and like makes good financial decisions. It had no bearing. It, it did not represent how he felt about her. Anyway, I feel like a lot of times people's friends give them bad advice, but it sounds like Carrie is very wise and has her best interests at heart. So I'm happy to hear that. For sure. Um, I think, yeah, even the splitting the check thing, I think that's a huge one that a lot of women get the advice from other dating materials of this guy's not into you. You know, it just a terrible sign. And it it kind of gets this blanket thing. But I think from a male perspective, you know, we both have brothers and they'll tell us how expensive it is to be dating. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's it's such an investment that's like, it, to put in that much money and time in a stranger is kind of a big ask, in my opinion. Don't you feel like there's a bigger picture here, which is like, if women wanted to be treated as, as equals, which I think we do, mm-hmm. and want to make equal pay, and if dating is expensive, then we should be splitting the cost of dating. Yeah. And maybe it feels a little crass to say, let's split the bill. But you say, I'll get this one or, or you get the next one. Or maybe the woman just says, let me, let me, let, maybe you just make the habit to to pay for the first date. And hopefully there is a second date and he pays for the next one. But I just feel like we're just ascribing so much importance to these things that I don't really think represent deeper values like it's not that I don't believe in red flags I just think they need to be the right red flags so like splitting the bill not a red flag for me but like consistently showing up late consistently canceling like making up lame excuses for why they can't see you making you feel like an option instead of a priority like yeah those are reasons to walk in the other direction but like splitting the bill wore socks with sandals didn't open the door for you like I don't know who cares like is that really like what a relationship is about Mm mm-hmm yeah I think that goes to another point in your book where you kind of talk about like giving them the benefit of the doubt in a lot of situations so I think my question something that a lot of our listeners would think about is you know as a woman where do you draw the line of someone who just really is not that into you or someone who you know they might just have a lot of train delays uh, or Mm -hmm. something like that like how do you look out for yourself but also give someone the benefit of the doubt Yeah, I think that's an important question and it might even be worth like thinking through an example if you have one in mind. But yeah, so what I say in the book is it's really easy to think about someone's flaws. It's really easy at every level of the game. It's really easy to look at someone's profile and say, oh, works in finance, another finance bro, I'm done with finance. But then it's like, is every guy that works in finance exactly the same? No, it's a huge industry. And if you live in New York, like a lot of people are in finance. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And like, so the equivalent in the Bay Area where I live would be tech. Is everyone who works at a big tech company cliche? No, like there's just a lot of different people. It's a huge industry. And so starting with the profiles, I think just understanding that you can't understand everything about somebody from a profile and having a more open mind, that's step one. I think on the on the initial dates, just understanding that some people are not good on first dates. Some people are not charming. Some people are not that sparky. This woman that I just did an event with, Rachel Greenwald, she talked about this idea of the first pancake. I also, if you watch the show Younger, they also had an idea like this, where it's like when you're making pancakes, the first pancake is always bad. 
the, the pan isn't hot enough, the batter is not the right texture, and so you know you're going to throw away the first pancake. And so that's how she feels about the first date. That the first date is something where like you're just sort of getting to know each other and it's not going to be perfect. And so go into it thinking that you'll go on the second date. And that's the same thing in my book, make the second date the default. And so part of that is just understanding if you know you're going to go on the second date, you're not going to be as judgmental on the first one. You're just going to be thinking about it as like a little bit of a getting to know you vibe check. And so that is part of the being more compassionate of understanding that some people just don't really show up on the first date. And then I think maybe the last thing you're talking about is in the book, I talk about this idea of the fundamental attribution error. So this is the idea where if one of you showed, if, if I showed up late, I'd say, well, it's not my fault. My boss sent me this really stressful email 10 minutes before I was going to go. And I was going to be on time, but I was late because of the email. But if somebody else shows up late, we think, oh, that's because that person is rude. And we think that for other people, it's a sign of their character. And so in the book, I have a small exercise, you know, what is the fund fundamental attribute fundamental attribution error way of looking at this? And what is the compassionate way of looking at this? And so I do think that we should all be more compassionate and understand that in general, people are trying their best. That's especially true during the pandemic. And I'm sure you're both experiencing this where people just don't have that reservoir of resources. I think everyone's just like, they've used it up. Like we're tired. Like we've living Groundhog's Day every day for a year, like that inner strength that was like helping you show up in the way you want. I think a lot of us use that up like by November. And so I think being extra compassionate right now is a good call both for yourself and for other people. And so kind of a long-winded way of saying, you don't want to let people get away with disrespecting you. And I think that we hopefully know the difference between somebody doing something that hurts you. You know, I would say like lying, things that really feel like they're crossing a line, whereas somebody maybe not acting exactly the way you would want or occasionally showing up late, things like that. It's like, can we just be a little bit more compassionate right now? Because this is a really trying time and hopefully people are doing their best. Yeah. I was going to say this point in your book. Exactly. I feel like a lot of straight women struggle with a little bit of there's the like, I often get the advice and I think it's good advice of like, pay attention to what they do as opposed to what they say. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people will say one thing and that's who they mm -hmm. want to be. And that's that's what they're going to promise you. But then what they actually do totally. is not coming through on that promise. So I feel like something like being late. Okay. Yeah. Everyone's late every once in a while. Right. But then mm -hmm. with like, I don't know, bigger things. I think that that is a red flag that I think a lot of women will make excuses about. They'll be like, yeah. well, his job's really demanding. Well, you know, he has this thing. Well, and it's just like, okay, well, you're always getting the short end of the stick here. So you know, if he says he's going to do something and then he doesn't do it, now what? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's an important point and we can kind of talk it through together. It's like, you know, he can't be late to your friend's wedding. Like something that's really important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> your parents, you know, your parents are in town and you're like, this really matters to me. It's like, you need to figure it out for the important ones. And if you mess up, you need to be really sorry. And I think that an apology, a good apology is, this is the mistake that I made. Here's what I would do next time. And like, it won't happen again, as opposed to like, just consistently letting somebody get away with it. And like, this is where it's an art and a science. There's no exact thing. Like yeah. if he's late twice, it means he has a demanding job. But if he's late three times and he doesn't care about you, like there is no rule like that. But I think just having your eyes open and paying attention, like 
I have friends in my life that consistently let me down with plans and I've just sort of stopped making plans with them. Like I like them and like I text with them and I like talking to them on the phone, but no, it sucks making plans with them because inevitably they're going to cancel. And then I'm like, why didn't I make a plan with you? And so I think when it comes to a relationship, if you are monogamous and you're just going to have one person, like, do you really want the one person you get to make romantic plans with to consistently be like that? No. And so choose a different person that doesn't have that behavior. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think also communicate that it's important to you because, you know, there's some people that's just they kind of live their life with no just, you know, no eyes on the clock, not really paying attention. Yeah. And that's OK. Like they're happy with that. But it's like if if that's something that's very important to you, express that and, and whatever it is, you know, if it's something other than being on time. And I think give them a chance to let you down or to show up for you, because if you don't communicate it, I don't think that's really fair to the other person. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, I often bring up the time thing because I'm from a very punctual family and in my family, like punctuality equals respect. Mm -hmm. But that's not, you're right. That's not the case for people. And it actually has a huge cultural component. In some cultures, it's just like some cultures think time equals money. And some cultures are like time is more ambiguous. And if we say three, it means anywhere between like four and six. Yeah. So I think just letting the person know like which type you are. But then I can think about another example, which is I have a client who he's actually married and the whole time that he had been with his now wife um he was working at a company and he was the CEO and like things were were very steady and now he's starting his own company and so she's never been with him when she, when he's building something and so they had this ongoing conversation where she was like what did you do today what did you do today and he was having a hard time expressing this is in this very nascent period and this is a brand new idea and I actually can't share my baby with you because it's it's too delicate and I'm not ready for feedback and just mm-hmm. we had this really beautiful conversation around like he needed to realize that what he needed was some space and privacy around the growing business and to express to her like thank you for asking but actually I'm not ready to share it with you and like maybe hearing that I don't know if people can relate but I think there's so many things where it's like why do I feel uncomfortable why do I feel upset and first step one is identifying within yourself this is what's going on for me and then step two is expressing to the other person this is my need can you honor that And then step three is paying attention to how they react. If the person's reaction is like, well, that's stupid, or I don't agree, or more feedback is better, or who cares about being on time? It's like, hmm, like it's kind of gaslighting. Like you don't really seem to like care about what I've identified as my need. And so I think that one, two, three process, if we could all do that with our families, with our partners at work, you know, we'd be a lot better at getting what we wanted. Absolutely. I think all of this, it's just asking people to go in like a very extremely vulnerable place. And Mm -hmm. in your book, you have so many very practical ways to talk about these really vulnerable things with like the worksheets and uh, ways for people (laughs) to walk through these conversations. Is there like one or two worksheet or exercises that you think are like the main takeaways that someone in a committed relationship should use? Yeah, I mean the the worksheets I, I really I really care about because they're what help my clients turn some of the more philosophical things into actions and, mm-hmm. and practical things that they can do. I can list a few of them that I like. So there's one thing I just posted on Instagram, the post date eight. And these are eight questions to ask yourself after a date that help you tune into the stuff that matters versus doesn't matter. And it gets you out of this like, you know, does she have a graduate degree? Um, is he tall enough and really pay attention into the right type of checklist. 
Um, I also have this document in the breakup chapter called the crucial, crucial conversation planning doc. And I use that all the time, whether it's for relationship stuff or work stuff. It's basically just saying like a big conversation, like take some prep work. You actually have to go through it and be like, what am I trying to say? How could this go off the rails? What are my main messages? What's the tone I want? And just taking that 30 minutes to plan it out. I think the conversation is usually much better. And then two that people have been asking me a lot about are the relationship contract and the breakup contract. Mm -hmm. And I think people maybe just get caught up in the word contract, but it's not legal. It's not a legal (laughs) document. You know, it's not, it's nothing like that. It's basically just a catalyst for a conversation. Like specifically the relationship contract is where are we now? Where are we headed? How are we going to get there? What matters to us? Things like sex, monogamy, ritual, seeing our friends. And the point of it is that so many couples just assume like, I love you, you love me, we're headed in the same direction. But that's actually a common mistake that people make and then even get divorced over. And I spoke to divorce lawyers and they were like, yeah, like the woman just assumes like, of course we're going to move back to Portland where my parents live. Or the guy is like, I, you knew I was an Orthodox Jew. Like, of course we're going to raise our kids this way. And they just don't have that conversation. And so the relationship contract in particular, I think is a really helpful exercise for couples because it's making the implicit explicit. And then you can see if you're on the same page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was reading that chapter, it actually reminded me of a deeper version of the post-it in Grey's Anatomy with Meredith Grey and Derek Shepard. And because it was the thing that after they did like their vows on the post-it, they would always revert back to it when they were fighting. Like, okay, the post-it, we said we were going to do this for each other. And so I think this, it's just a way for couples to uh, just revert back to the promises that they make beyond vows. Yeah, that's exactly it. I wish I, I wish I knew that reference, (laughs) but I'm going to look it up because I also, if you in Sex in the City, the post-it is also oh, yeah. Yeah. The contract. Break, yeah, the breakup. <laughs> Good <laughs> uses for post-its. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, maybe I'm just a little long-winded. These things could all be post-its, but I do love that. And you really nailed it, which is the vows are most people, you know, a lot of people use pre-written vows or even if they write their vows, they're just like, I love you. This is why I want to marry you. They don't really like speak to the darker days. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why it's so important to have these explicit conversations. And so, you know, if I had to summarize it, I would say the point of the contract is to catalyze an important conversation around the future and to force couples to talk about hard stuff that they might otherwise choose not to, because it's saving you time long-term. Because if you can course correct before there's a problem, then later on, you don't have years of built up resentment and you know, it was always my dream to do this. And why didn't you support me? And so whether you do the contract once and you revisit it every six months, every six years, you know, it's kind of up to you, but that initial conversation really helps couples get on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing that stuck out to me too, especially like looking back at my relationship that just ended was Mm -hmm. how you said that you and your husband actually have like a weekly check-in. And that was something that I felt in my relationship was like, oh, we never actually like checked in with each other of how this was going. And I think that's why when it came to an abrupt end, it was kind of like, well, what the fuck just happened? (laughs) And so to always just revert back of like, okay, are we staying on what we promised each other? Yeah. I mean, I think your story is super interesting. How long were you dating? Uh, For almost five months. 
I mean, it really does sound, and obviously just read the book, like the people I described called ditchers. Yeah. Where, oh, that, like, that one hit me. Like, yeah. I want you to like give him this book and be like, listen, this is your pattern. You date people for three to six months at mm-hmm. around the three to six month part. You're like, I just don't feel like I'm, you know, it's not the honeymoon period anymore. And I would expect to feel a different way. And therefore I'm going to run off and find the person with whom I feel it that way. And mm-hmm. it's like, dude, like get a grip. Like you're always going to have a transition from the honeymoon to the next stage. And if you just keep seeking the honeymoon period, like you're never going to get into a relationship. And there's all these scientific reasons why. And one of them that I talk about the book is called the transition rule. And it's that when you ask people, how will you feel if you win the lottery? And how will you feel as a lottery winner? Everyone thinks about the moment of winning the lottery, of going from a non-lottery winner to to being a lottery winner. But a year down the road, most lottery winners revert back to the level of happiness that they had before they won the lottery. And that's because the transition from non-lottery winner to lottery winner is big, but then you just adapt to your life. And so people confuse falling in love for being in love. And so falling in love is a transition, but once you're in love, it's just not as much the like crazy high highs. And so I feel like for him, he's like, well, I'm going to just go on to the next person and do the falling in love stage. But it's like, at some point, I hope that he understands that like, that doesn't last forever. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I, uh, I definitely thought about mailing him this book. But <laughs> Does he listen to the show? I don't think so, actually. Okay. Yeah. We'll find out. <laughs> Problem number one. <laughs> Which, by the way, another plug, guys, reminder, share this uh, episode to your Instagram story. Tag Logan. T- uh, make sure you just tag Logan at Logan Yuri and <laughs> tag us at Shooters Gotta Shoot Pod uh, to enter to win. We got two copies of the book we're mailing out. So yeah. if you want it or you want to try to win it for somebody else, <laughs> share the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get in there. What were you saying about him or... um? Oh, that, you know, we never checked in on, oh, yeah, on yeah, how yeah. either oh, yeah. of us was feeling. And yeah. then all of a sudden it was just, he was like, uh, you know, things haven't gotten deeper. I don't like you any less, but I don't feel like I like you anymore. And yeah. I was I, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's actually, you know, it's been a while since I was in like the four to five month part of a relationship. So I think that's actually just a good reminder, which is like in the beginning, like we are being our best selves and we're making our bed in the morning and like <laughs> we want to impress the other person. And like, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm not saying like, don't date, don't flirt, don't show up the way you want to see. Like, of course it's great to, in the beginning, like to try to impress a person and be your best self. I think that's all great. But I think the bad side of that is when we aren't being real and we don't have these real conversations. Mm-hmm. And so I think a, a, a weekly check-in is really intense for the early stages of a relationship. Yeah. Like that's something that we've been doing like since we've been like really serious and thinking about getting married. So what would be the equivalent for somebody at the four to five month mark? I think it's that bringing things up as they happen. And so mm-hmm. let's say there was a night where you went out with your friends and you felt like he was being a little off maybe just instead of like being like oh I'm sure it's fine or I don't want to be difficult just saying like hey like seems like things were a little weird last night like how are you feeling and giving that person space to be like oh I actually felt really excluded and like your friends have all these inside jokes and like then you're like oh I didn't realize that like I'm sorry like next time I'll do this or maybe when you give them space they never share stuff with you and then you're like this feels bad. Like I want a conversation. I want a relationship that has conversation in it. And so in general, 
I like to make the recommendation that people date like a scientist, which is basically dating with the idea that you don't always have the information you need, but you're going to go seek out that information. And so mm. bringing up to someone, this felt bad. How did it feel for you? Or you seemed off. What's going on? And then seeing how they react. That's, a, that's good data to understand in the future if you can deal with things. Because, you know, trust me, things come up all the time. Like so much of life is kind of seeing these obstacles and working through them with your partner. And so that's something that I'd recommend that people do is that throughout the relationship, both of you bring stuff up. And then obviously I wasn't at your breakup, but I would, you know, you, I think you could have given the feedback, which is like, I sort of wish this were a conversation versus just a breakup because like some of this stuff we could have fixed, but like, I didn't know what was going on for you. And that's like my rule number one of breakups is like, have you tried to fix it? And does the person know? Because it's kind of like a performance review at work. You don't want to be, you don't want to hear what you're doing wrong the same day that you get fired. You want yeah. a chance to hear what's going wrong and then try to improve it. And so I just think this person mishandled the situation. Man, I feel like I really nailed it though. Cause that's yeah. what I said to him. She did. So this is validated. Yeah. Yeah. She did tell him this was yeah. not a conversation. This yeah. is your, just your decision. Cool. Well, I feel like every story you told me, I don't know you, but it sounds like you're really handling things well. And Thank you. Speaking. Yeah. No, I mean, I love when people tell me stories where they're like, this is what's going on and this is what I'm said. And I'm like, yeah, sounds like you're in great shape. Like you have emotional intelligence. We just need to find you the right person who also has emotional intelligence. I don't think you, I mean, look, I know nothing about this relationship, but at least in the breakup, it sounds like you didn't do anything wrong. You were like, here are my needs. You didn't meet them. Like this was messed up. And then the other person was like, yeah, I guess I couldn't handle that so like you just need to go find someone who does who can match you sort of in that ability to articulate feelings and needs and you know it's not all about finding a relationship with no bumps it's what do we do when we encounter a bump and like sure. can we get through the bump together for sure yeah and I loved your science experiment thing like date like a scientist yeah because I think a lot of times people are afraid to have conversations because they don't want a certain outcome. Whereas yeah, a scientist yeah. is like, we're going to do that. this experiment. This is what I hope the outcome is. Yeah. But that's why we're doing the experiment. I'm going to see 100%. what it is. And I feel like yeah, that's yeah. that's those hard conversations, like to find the relationship. Mm -hmm. Everybody holds off because it's like in your gut, you're being like, I feel like I'm not going to get the answer I want. And it's like, well, that's why that's you got to have that it. conversation. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, especially I mean, in today. My husband is, he's a mathematician. He's very scientific. He's an AI researcher. And he talks about this all, all the time that basically there's this bias in science where people know that if you do an experiment and it doesn't have the outcome you want, it won't be published. And so <laughs> people do experiments oh. a certain way or people only choose experiments with these dynamics or they do this thing called p-hacking where they actually mm -hmm. affect the outcome because nobody publishes the thing that's like, we thought this really cool might think, thing might happen, but it didn't. Nobody publishes that paper. Yeah. And so there's this feeling of, you know, you're you're only looking for a certain outcome or it's only valuable if this outcome happens. But what real science should be is the scientific method where you have a hypothesis and you test it and you either, either you know, sometimes um, you have the finding and sometimes you have a different finding, but both findings are valuable. And so I really love what you're saying because it's in dating if you want to define the relationship, but you don't because you're like, what if they say they're not ready? Or what if you say, what if they say they're not interested? That's bad. What if you reframe that to say, if they tell me that they're not interested or that they just got out of a long relationship and they won't be ready for a while, well, at least now I know that. Mm -hmm. And that empowered me 
to say, I don't want to wait around. Or it empowered me to say, I also just got out of a long relationship and maybe I'm rushing things and I'm happy to, to, to give this some time. And so I think for anyone listening, it's what is the conversation that you really need to be having that you're avoiding? Mm-hmm. What is the risk of having the conversation? And is isn't not having that conversation a bigger risk than having it. And so just Mm. go have that conversation. Yeah. And I'd say like manipulating the experiment is the same as like giving ultimatums or lying yourself. (laughs) Like, you know, like you're like putting people in positions that you're like, well, I'm getting the result I want. Like now they're coming with me to my cousin's wedding. And it's like, you manipulated the experiment. Yeah. Like just because all you were worried about was the outcome. And it's like, it's not accurate though. Mm -hmm. It's like Like withholding sex until they do something. Yes. That's another one. I've done that. Oh yeah. I think there's, I think, I mean, I, I haven't even seen sex in the city in a long time, but there's one where uh, Charlotte is having sex with what's his name do you guys even do you oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay she's having sex what's her future husband's name Harry yeah the bald yeah. guy and she's, she's like it doesn't matter if I'm not Jewish right and they're like about to have orgasms and he's like no and then later she's like all happy and he's like why are you happy she's like you said the being Jewish thing doesn't matter he's like we were in the middle of having sex like that is not the time to ask me yeah. that and so I totally agree with what you're saying right you're not and, doing a controlled environment there you know yeah. I mean this is getting very philosophical but it's like people are very attached to outcomes like Mm -hmm. I don't want to have this conversation until I know what you're gonna say or like I wouldn't risk you saying no so I'm not gonna ask the question what if you're like life is a story that is like being written as we live it and I want to understand what's going on for you and then that empowers me to make a decision versus being so afraid of more information like Mm -hmm. I think in general more information is a good thing yeah and I think a lot of people when they get the answer that they don't want especially like a define the relationship is a great example mm-hmm. they will find a reason why and mm-hmm. to stick around and you know what let's try it again in a couple of weeks or something it's like that's not what you want so you have to be ready to walk away um and i think it goes to that quote that's like when someone tells you or shows you who you are listen mm-hmm. the first time because mm-hmm. it's not going to change down the line Yeah, I totally agree with that. A question that I get a lot is, do people change? I think there's a few layers to that question. So one is like, of course, people change in some ways. Like people get more mature. Sometimes people get more cynical. Like there's changes that we go through. Um, I think sometimes, you know, when people meet, they're not close. And then, of course, they change and get closer to each other. But in general, I think people are who they are Mm -hmm. and that we have a lot of delusions around like, well, I'll mentor him and then he'll become really ambitious and then he'll get the kind of job that I want him to have. It's like, no, then you're taking on somebody as a fixer upper project. And that's it's not realistic. It's not a good dynamic. I hate these mentor mentee couples. And I think instead just being like, if you never changed, if you were exactly who you are right now in five years would I be happy with that and I think if the answer is no then you really need to think about that because choosing somebody assuming that they're going to change it just feels like an unwise decision to me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's like a lot of women it's just like look you bought him a better pair of fitting jeans that's fine (laughs) the ambition thing isn't going to change the package might look a little better because you advised him to go to a better hairdresser you know it's like totally agree there's little things (laughs) the jeans the shoes the haircut (laughs) cleaning up the bathroom those can change but yeah yeah. I think the, the core values and the fundamental personality traits like we just know from scientific research like people's personalities tend to be pretty consistent throughout their lives Things like extroversion, neuroticism, openness, like those are are, are pretty stable traits. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. I've been saying this for years. <laughs> like yeah, people are like, I've changed it. a lot since high school. I'm like, I haven't. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> be I was blunt to you. and straightforward in high school. I'm still blunt and straightforward now. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've learned to tone it down a little. <laughs> it's not gone. <laughs> uh, in your book, you mentioned the three dating tendencies that we also were very, very intrigued by. So do you want to give a little synopsis of that for our listeners? Yes, absolutely. So the three dating tendencies came about because when I was doing dating coaching, I noticed that I had all these different clients from different walks of life, but they seemed to have the same set of problems. And so I categorized these into this framework called the three dating tendencies. What they all have in common is that they have unrealistic expectations. And so the first one, and also also would love to hear what you two are. And for anyone listening, who's curious, I have the quiz on my website. So first one is the romanticizer and they have unrealistic expectations of relationships. And so these are the people who expect Prince Charming or Princess Ariel to just come find them. And that there is one person out there, there's this soulmate and that when love happens and it's the right person, it's effortless. And so the big problem with the romanticizer is that as soon as the relationship hits that inevitable rough spot, instead of saying, we can work this out, they say, oh, must not be my soulmate. Because if it were my soulmate, it would be easy. The second type is the maximizer. This is the most common type I see in dating coaching. It doesn't mean it's the most common, you know, nationally or internationally, but this is the type of person who comes and works with me a lot. And so these people have unrealistic expectations of their partners. And they're the ones who say, you know, I like my girlfriend, but could I be 5% happier with somebody else? Um, could she be 5% funnier, 5% more ambitious? They're always trying to optimize and see the next best thing. And they feel like there's this perfect person out there and they just have to find them. And so the issue with the maximizer is that they're so focused on partner selection, on choosing the right person. They really don't understand that relationships are often about choosing somebody great, committing and making it work as opposed to if you find such a good person, then there will be no problems. And so for the maximizer, the work that I do with them is help them understand at a certain age, you probably already dated somebody who'd make a great partner. And so the next time you find someone like that, make it work, commit and create a great relationship. Don't just expect that one day you'll find the perfect person. And then the third one is the hesitator and they have unrealistic expectations of themselves. So they want to be that perfect person. And so (laughs) I'm getting a lot of emails after my book came out from hesitators who are like, I just totally relate to this. Like, I don't feel like I'm lovable yet. I want to have a more impressive job. I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to have you know, clean up my apartment. And they feel like love is this conditional thing. Like I'm not lovable yet. One day I will be. And I don't want to put myself out there and meet someone because I'm not lovable yet. But that's the wrong approach because they're missing out on two things. One, dating is a skill and you have to get better at dating. So not being out there means you're not getting better at dating. Two, date like a scientist. You have to figure out the type of person who's going to make you happy long term. And so every night that you're sitting at home waiting around for the perfect day when you'll be ready to date, you're not get, getting better at dating. You're not figuring out who you want to be with. And so really my message for the hesitators is don't wait, date. And I know it's a pandemic. I know video Mm -hmm. chats are challenging. And some of these COVID conversations you're really sick of having, but you are missing out on so much by not putting yourself out there. So just download the apps, set a deadline, three weeks from now, start dating, have some friends with portrait mode, take some pictures of you and just start doing it because you'll never be 100% perfect or ready and neither will anybody else. And you just really have to get out there and start. 
Yeah. I mean, I I love this part. And um, I did the quiz and I was actually tied between a maximizer and a hesitator. Mm-hmm. And in, in reading through, I think more of my tendencies are on the hesitator side. You mm-hmm. know, before this last relationship, I hadn't actually been on a real date in like a year because I was like, oh, I'm just not ready. Like there's too much other stuff going on. And I think it, in looking back, I'm like, I just made so many excuses. And then when I did get into a relationship, there were so many little things I was like, I don't even know how to handle this. Like I haven't mm. been on a first date or a second date in so long. Like this kind of feels weird. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, I, I love that chapter. Yeah. I really, thanks for sharing that about being a hesitator. I think that makes total sense because yeah, it's like what the hesitator is doing is making excuses for not getting out there. Mm-hmm. But so what I really wanted to do in the chapter was draw your eyes to what you're missing out on and hopefully mm-hmm. like that the excuses are smaller than the reasons why you should do it. Oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. I want to hear where you are. No, go for it. Um, I was going to say I was also a combo. And when I actually just heard you explain it now, I definitely think I leaned a little bit more towards hesitator. And I actually compared it to in my brain when people talk about like working out and taking care of their physical health. What's your main excuse? And a lot of people, their main excuse is I don't have the time. Like, mm-hmm. I just don't have the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to do it when I have the time. And that's kind of more the hesitator, right? And then there's the other people that they're like, yeah, I just, you know, I don't like yoga. You know, I just, I haven't found the right workout for me. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of the romanticizer where they're like, I just don't mm-hmm. love working out. Like I have to find the one workout that works for it me. It doesn't click. Right. And then there's the maximizer. That's your friend that you, every time you talk to, they're like, well, now I'm counting macros. Now I'm doing this workout. This <laughs> is the new hot workout that Jennifer Aniston oh, man, does. And look, this. you know what I mean? Like I they're like, this. yeah, I, I did spin totally. a while, but then I got, I got stagnant. And I don't you even have to shock your muscles. You know? so, <laughs> that's really funny. So like hearing I you explain it, I'm that, like, yeah. man, I thought of the different people I know with working out. And mm-hmm. I kind of was like, Hey, my number one workout thing is I'm the, I don't have time person. And I'm often the same way in dating and it's sometimes also also very much stems from like weight fluctuation I that's something like personally that I'll be like I just feel chubby right now I don't feel sexy I don't feel cute Mm -hmm. I don't want to put on the cute outfit and go Mm -hmm. out with anybody friends dates like I'm like I'm not in the mood to put on my hot dress whereas when I'm working out I'm feeling good I like lose a little weight or whatever I feel just better I'm like oh now now I gotta bring this out there you know when like you said the whole time it's like you're taking yourself off the market fully mm-hmm. and that's not helping you either. So I, I think I am more of the hesitator, I'd say. But. Yeah. And I think the combo makes sense because it's like, well, your main thing that you're doing is that you're waiting, but the other tendencies, maximizer or romanticizer or whatever, are contributing to why you're making excuses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the combo like is very common and makes sense. And yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the working out example. It's like, Working out is like, sometimes you're going to see the results you want. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're going to be into it, this and that. But it's like, you just have to make a routine and get better at it and get your reps in. And the same is true with dating. Because if you're sitting at home thinking about how one day you're going to be ready, then when you actually do meet that great person and then you have this moment, it'll be like exactly what you just said, where you'll be like, damn, I don't have my reps in around the DTR. I don't have my reps in around the, my parents are coming to town. It's like, actually, why not get the practice in so that when you do meet that person that you're like, this is somebody to invest in you're pretty good at all the stages and so you know the guy you were talking about who broke up with you who feels to me like the quintessential ditcher it's like the thing that I would say to him is like you're not getting in the reps of months six through 72 and you're only getting the reps in of months one through five and like eventually you're gonna get to month six and seven and it'll be so new to you it's like yeah you really have to get your reps in around everything not just the first dates in the first few months 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was someone who went on a lot of first dates and that's some, it made me feel very insecure as someone who just hadn't been out there. And so I think that was also something in reading your book and seeing the different levels of, of people that there are in relationships that like everyone is going to have a, an insecurity at a different point. And so like it doesn't really matter if you haven't had like a ton of relationship experience to this point, like just get out there and start doing it and and get that information, learn how you react in these situations. Yeah, I really love that point. Thank you for saying it. Because I think it's like he was better at first dates than you maybe because he'd been on a ton. But like in like the very small thing I've learned about you in an hour, it's like, (laughs) well, you're maybe better at emotional conversations than he is. Not because you've been in so many relationships, but like because you have emotional intelligence or you talk to your friends and family in an open way. And so it's like, yeah, we all have aspects of relationships that we can get better at. And the best way to get better at something is by practicing and trying. It's not like waiting for perfection, waiting for this certain person. And so, yeah, we all have steps of the relationship where we need to improve. And so I think we should just be getting out there, being self-aware about what those are, and then actually working on getting better at them. So we usually just ask a little fun question kind of to wrap up. Sure. So of the two we have, I feel like you gave a lot of great dating advice. Do you have a shoot your shot story that you would mind sharing? Sure. I mean, my shoot your shot story is that, you know, I knew my now husband for around eight years before we even started dating. And and, uh, in the beginning, he was tutoring me in this statistical programming language called R. And then we went from having lunch together once a month to once a week to almost every day. But it was still just hanging out at work and talking on the phone. And so one day at work, I was like, hey, I don't really have plans on Friday night. You know, you should ask me to do something. And sort of <laughs> I kind of took the bold move of transitioning, giving him the signal that I wanted to transition from friends to something more. And then we did end up going out that night. And obviously now we've been together for six years and we're married. And so I think in that moment, you know, well, well, I think the lesson there is actually a lot of times the best partners are someone that we're already friends with because we know them, we know the side of us they bring out. We already have a great dynamic with them, but it is really scary to risk the friendship by moving it to the next thing. And so I think saying something like that and feeling out their response, like that is a great way to shoot your shot. (laughs) Well, I was also going to say in terms of compassion, people you're friends with, you care about, you're always going to be on that compassionate side with them too. When they do make little mistakes, like you're like, well, because you already know they're a good person. Like it's totally true. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel like I know a lot of couples who were roommates, like Craigslist roommates or friend of a friend roommates. And then eventually they're like, I want to have sex with you and date you. <laughs> and they can turn in, those can turn into great relationships. Cause you've already seen that person messy on a Sunday morning eating Cheerios. And like, you can fall in love with them on that sense. It's not like they were wearing a mask and then one day you have to take the mask off. Like there never was a facade that they were putting on. Mm-hmm. I've, I have to say I've had this a few scenarios in my life okay. it is yet to work <laughs> but I will keep shooting that shot when I see it you know Great. <laughs> gotta get some there new roommates go. in here <laughs> yeah. you were yeah. you confirmed I was not wrong to try Logan so I appreciate I it yeah. <laughs> um, anyway this has been so awesome thank you so much for coming on um, everybody you can find Logan at Logan last name U-R-Y that's L-O-G-A-N U-R-Y and remember if you want to enter to win her book that is truly a great book for free just share this episode to your Instagram story tag Logan tag us at Shooters Gotta Shoot Pod and uh, thank you so much for coming on this is so awesome I had a great time really thoughtful questions thanks for sharing about your own dating lives and yeah it was so much fun yeah keep us posted on everything you do in the future this is great okay thank you so much bye bye